Here we go. November the 3rd, 2013, uh, lecture discussion number 130 on the book of Romans. As you know, we're at Romans 5, 12 through 14, and that got us into the mortagenic factor of Adam, you know, why it is that he, ha- he is the one that uh, provides physical death, or it comes through the gamete of the male sperm, if you will. And that brought us uh, to the fact that Christ does not have the mortagenic factor, when that brought us to the crucifixion, ultimately, as to uh, what would happen if you tried to kill somebody who cannot be killed, especially if you're trying to kill God, because that's who we have there. He says so in Zechariah 12.10, and that got us to Psalm 22, and all of that now has brought us uh, to uh, 1 Kings 13, um, and uh, and First King, and I'm sorry, Second uh, Kings 22 through 24. When we were last together, October 27th last week, we briefly entered into the typology of Josiah, who had been given the book of the law. What had happened, for those who might have missed that particular lecture, um, the, the book of the law had been missing. No one had seen it for over a hundred years. The kings had, uh, Manasseh especially, had become... Uh, evil again, they go, they're good and they're evil, they're good and they're evil, pretty much like our political system. But anyway, the, the precious things of God were missing and had not been found. They were unfound. They weren't lost. They just didn't know where they were because they weren't interested in them. But they had been found now by Hilkiah and a new king had arisen. Uh, he was Josiah. He was about 26 years old at the time that Hilkiah finds the book of the law of Moses, and he brings it to him. Josiah did not even know it existed, much less if it was real. They would consider it uh, after that length of time pretty much like our society does, as a, as a mythology. And it, it has a tremendous impact. Josiah, as you know, is a complex portrait. He's a type of Christ. You can... Figure out what happened at the crucifixion of Christ accurately, uh, more specifically, if you will, by understanding Josiah. Once you understand what Josiah does as a prophecy, as a picture of Christ, and again, specifically with respect to the crucifixion of Christ, then you will know what really happened at the crucifixion. And studying Josiah gives us clear insight into the death of Christ, the correct understanding as opposed to the blasphemous rot that is overwhelming us now. You ask me what I really think of it. That's the norm in the contemporary church model today, the blasphemous rot. This is the seeker-sensitive crowd who have long noticed that there's a lineal relationship or ratio of crying and the amount of the offering. So they have completely tore to pieces the truth of the crucifixion in order to make money off of people who cry over it. Anyhow, Josiah has these central elements. When you study Josiah, you have to know that one of the things he does is disguise himself. He's a picture of Christ. So what should we expect Christ to do? Disguise himself. Josiah is the king of Israel disguised as a common soldier. So Christ is who? 
Christ is God himself in the flesh. So, when you understand that disguising element, that's, that's central to the crucifixion. This is God himself on the cross. He says so in Zechariah 12.10. It's me. That's me, God says, on the cross. You may not know it. That's your fault. So, that disguising element of Josiah is very important to understand. It's the most significant, in my opinion. Jesus Christ says definitively that he and the Father are the same. They're one and the same. They're one, John 10.30. And he says, if you see me, you have seen the Father, John 14.9, right? And again, Jesus Christ is telling you, Colossians 1.15, that he is the visible aspect of God. Christ can be seen. So whenever you see Christ, you are seeing who? God. Every time, always. He is the invisible made visible. He's the image of God in that you can see him. That's what that means. It'd be like if I had an image on a coin or an image on a, on a painting. He's the, or a statue if you want to think image that way. He is the image, what you can say God looks like. But he is, I shouldn't say but, the world does not say that. They have, as I've said, blasphemous rot. They don't say that's who Christ is. They'll give you something completely the opposite of that. Christ, Jesus Christ, is completely infinite, omnipotent God always. He is the invisible Godhead. He is the visible part, not part, he is the visible person of it. Now quickly, I want you to just think about the implications of God calling himself or describing himself as invisible. Why does he do that? Why, if you want to, why is God invisible? What is the purpose of God, God's invisibility? He tells us he's the, he's spirit. You have to worship, you have to understand that he is a spiritual entity, John 4.24. And that you are a two-component being, right? You have a physical component, substance dualism, and you have a spiritual component. And the spiritual component is controlling the physical component. My body is simply a way of expressing my mind, if you will, or my soul. God says he's spirit. And you have your spiritual side has to worship him. You have to understand that you have a spiritual side and you have to know the truth about who he is. Doesn't mean you feel. Spirit doesn't have anything to do with you crying. Whenever you're crying in church, what should you be doing next? Yeah, putting both hands on your wallet. That's right. Because you know what's coming. Being spiritual has nothing to do with being emotional. Understand that. But God can be felt. He can be heard. And if he is seen both New Testament and Old Testament, then it is who? Every time you see God, who is it? It is Jesus Christ. He is the one, the person of the triune Godhead, who is manifested in a visible way. It's always him. No one sees the Father, John 6.46, except he who is from God. God from God. Now, I ask the obvious question, what does it mean to see the Father? Because you can't. What is required to see God the Father? 
yeah, you have to be infinite in order to see him, especially in totality. That is a requirement of, the, of infinity. Very good from the math teacher. In any way, in any event, Jesus Christ is God and very few knew it at his crucifixion. When he's on the cross, very few people knew that that was God. Um, even though he said so, that it will be me at the crucifixion, I will be the one you're looking at, I will be the one that is pierced, that's me, God. He says so definitively, Zechariah 12.10. That's why it's called the Zechariah 12.10 position of the crucifixion. But at the time of the crucifixion, no one knew that, there, that Josiah was a type, and no one knew that that was God himself on the cross, on his own cross. And uh, Jesus Christ is in, if you will, the first chariot of Josiah, to refer to Josiah typology of Second Chronicles 35:24. If you were here the previous weeks, you know that Josiah comes out of his king chariot and he goes into a, a soldier's chariot, if you will. It's called the first chariot, and he dies in that first chariot. And he's taken out of that and put into his king chariot. And you see this typology of Christ now start to come through with the two chariots of Josiah. Does Christ come into Jerusalem in a big chariot? No, he comes in on a donkey, right? That donkey has great significance, by the way. It's going to come up again. Everyone asks me all the time, not everyone, a lot of people ask me, why did he ride in on a donkey? Why not a horse? Why not a chariot? Why didn't he, why wasn't he in some kind of elaborate parade? He wasn't. Yes, he's in his first chariot, if you will. The donkey represents, is represented by Josiah's first chariot, but the donkey will come again, as you will see as we get to the story that we have to read today. Just understanding the purpose of the two chariots of Josiah will give you a foundation into the Godhood of Christ that will prevent any non-Zechariah 12.10 position on Christ's crucifixion uh, from affecting you. If you understand the two chariots of Josiah, the disguising of Josiah, uh, the death of Josiah, if you will, you will never have any difficulty uh, falling for some kind of silly position that does not... Uh, uh, that is in opposition to Zechariah 12.10. Uh, the, the Christ is pitiful and weak and pathetic and despairing and afraid and confused uh, group cannot stand against Zechariah 12.10. So if all you get from me today's class is go read Zechariah 12.10 and get it inside your body so that you'll never fall for that other nonsense out there that all the movies are about that Christ is... is uh, Whatever they say, it's just it's it's horrific, and they will stand in front of him someday and have to account for it. Okay. Anyway, Josiah was given the book of the law. They found it after a hundred years or so. No one knew where it was. And by the way, what's where is it? When you find it, it is supposed to be beside. It is accompanying the Ark of the Covenant. That's Deuteronomy thirty-one twenty-four through twenty-seven. That's for John. Uh, in case uh, he wants to still ask you, Kathy. The, the book of the law of Moses is sitting next to, it's required by Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 27, to be alongside of, almost attached to, if you will. They think that they may have had some method of putting 
the law of Moses next to physically so that it could not be separated from the Ark of the Covenant. So if you're going to find the book of the law of Moses, then you're going to find the Ark of the Covenant. There is no way around it. So they're side by side. Second Chronicles 34, 14. So it's difficult to argue, and some do. What do we call them? That's right, we call them wrong. When you look at Deuteronomy 31 and Second Chronicles 34, you really understand quickly that Hilkiah found the actual autograph of Moses. What do I mean by the autograph of Moses? Hilkiah found the original handwritten manuscript of Moses. That's what he found. No one had seen it for over a hundred years, if even then. And Hilkiah founds it. Now again, this, the majority view is that all he found was a copy of the book of Deuteronomy. Again, that's in conflict with the title of what he found. The title of it is the law, the book of law of the law of Moses. Moses. And it, it plainly says it's the entire writings of Moses. The instructions that the entire book of the law of Moses, as soon as he was done writing, it had to be set by the Ark of the Covenant. And then you had to read it every seven years on the feast day of tabernacles to the entire nation of Israel. Deuteronomy is, of course, in those writings. By itself, it is, as you know, the marriage contract document between God and Israel. Now, I have the Ark of the Covenant, and I have the book of Moses, his handwritten manuscript. So Hilkiah would bring that book to Josiah, and Josiah would know this is Moses' handwriting. This is his actual, the original five books of the Bible. That's what we found. By the way, will we find it again? We will. We'll find it again. Where is it? It's next to the Ark of the Covenant. They left that out in the movie. That, that handwritten manuscript of Moses is incredible. We can't even imagine what it looks like. But we're going to find it again. Israel's going to find it again. And I hope they find it this week, Thursday. It'd be great. As if they do, the whole world changes. Man, this changes. Just like it changed Josiah. But anyway. If I have the Ark of the Covenant, I have the manuscript of Moses, what else do I have? Hebrews 9.4. What else do I have? I have Aaron's rod. I have the golden pot of manna. I have the two stone tablets that God wrote with his finger. And the whole world changes. That's what happened to Josiah on a small scale. They didn't know, they, they, most of the society had become completely pagan. By the way, most of our society is now completely pagan. If you think this is a Christian nation, you're in for a rude awakening. This is a secular nation. It has abandoned its faith. That's what happened to Israel. And all of a sudden, Hilkiah finds the actual handwritten 
law, book, manuscript of Moses, and he brings it to the king, Josiah, and it is physical proof beyond any doubt that the God of Israel is the God of creation. I have stone tablets, and they are unique. They have been written by God's finger, and it's extraordinary. We can't imagine what they look like, other than we know we won't be able to duplicate it. And there, and you learned immediately, Josiah learned immediately, Hilkiah did, everyone in that room when they found it. You can just imagine how it affected them. Josiah was transformed by the discovery. And Josiah began, the first thing he did was he mourned his foolishness. He mourned the fact that he was sucked in by paganism. He mourned the fact that he did not have a doctrinally sound position on God. I'm saying it that way because I think this experience is going to hit a lot of people. And Josiah turns as no king of Israel has ever turned to God, is what is said of him. And Josiah immediately begins to cleanse Israel. He cleans the temple and he begins burning idols and he begins burning priests, pagan priests. Now, I want you to notice the typology again. He's cleaning the temple. So you would expect that when Christ came, Christ would do this in a higher level. Josiah has the type. Christ has the fulfillment of the type. And then Josiah decides it's time to read the entire five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Pentateuch, the first five, the Law of Moses. He believes it's now the time to read it to the whole nation, and he starts doing it. And he fulfills this amazing prophecy of 1 Kings 13, which is where we are today. We'll get to it in just a moment. This is all review. Why? That's right, because Kathy brought a visitor. So that's what it's all about. This is the point in the church where we all get up and we walk over and we put our, we form a circle, a light comes on, and we sing some song to the visitor, right? No, apparently it's not. It's not. I have had visitors get up and leave before, right at that joke. And I'll never forget, uh, he doesn't come here anymore. Alan Brown brought a, brought a man, and I made my joke that I make all the time. I said, well, as you know, the lecture today will be short. It'll only be three and a half hours. The guy got up and left. Was anybody here when that happened? And Alan ran after him, trying to convince him it was a joke. The guy believed me. I really liked him, too. Anyway, we're going to take on, this is where we are today, the mystery of the unnamed prophet, 1 Kings 13. Lori was talking to me today. She said, I remember when you did this 15 years ago. Does anybody, was anybody here when I did 1 Kings 13, the Mr. Bill? You might, were you guys here? You had to be. But she said, I don't remember anything about it. Or, or said, I was reading it, and I, I said, what is this? How is this solved? So it's kind of, if I wait long enough, it's like it's brand new. This, this is, that's the way my life goes, by the way. So this is going to be a long day of reading, the mystery of the unnamed prophet. There's no other way to do it. Uh, 
I think I read uh, 2 Kings 2, 17 through 18 earlier, but I can't remember if I did, and so therefore, uh, and I didn't note it in uh, last week's uh, lecture notes, so i got to do it again to make sure I got it. So go to 2 Kings, oh, it's 23, isn't it? Yes, 23, 7, 16. 16 through 18. So let's read that. This, by the way, is the end of the story. So what am I doing? I'm giving you the answer to the question before I ask you the question. Or if you're reading a mystery novel, it's the same as finding out the butler did it on page 270 and then starting all over again. Right? It's never the butler. It's always who? It's always the husband or the wife. That's right. So here we are, 2 Kings 23, 17 through 18. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were on the mountains. So what he's doing, by the way, is he's excavating everybody that's in the tomb. He's taking out their bones and he's putting them on this altar and he's burning their bones. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and, and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed. The man of God proclaimed this in 1 Kings 13. We're in 2 Kings 23, 300 years later. Okay? Which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Then he said, this is Josiah says this, What gravestone is this that I see? So the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you, Josiah, have done against the altar of Bethel. So let me give, help you out in case this is new to you. King Josiah has gone to the gravesite of the priests of Bethel. He's excavated them all out. He's grabbed the bones. He's taken them to the altar of Bethel, which is a pagan altar, and he's burning the bones of the priests who have died over the 300 years in fulfillment of something a man says 300 years ago in 1 Kings 13. And he said, Josiah said, once he found out this one tomb, because he's taken them all, this one tomb, though, is the tomb of the unnamed prophet and another guy, another prophet. Let him alone. Let no one move his bones. So they let his bones alone and the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. And then it goes on to tell you that he executed all the priests and burned burned everything. Okay? So that's the end of the story. That's Josiah 300 years later. He does not burn the bones of these two prophets. Josiah, though, does, as I said, empty all the tombs and burn those bones. So let's start out knowing that I have something about bones to deal with. Burning bones. Whenever I have bones, I'm immediately connected to what? If you've been coming. Raise your hand. Never raise your hand here. Okay. Make somebody else raise their hand that doesn't know. That'll work. Bones. Broken bones. Passover lamb. And I have this piercing issue. Right? Because those two are locked together at the crucifixion, as you may know, if you have been here. The piercing of the side of Christ, which is a fulfillment of the piercing of the side of Adam, uh, is connected to his bones being unbroken, which is connected to the Passover lamb. 
And all of that fits together. And now we're at bones again here with Josiah, as I would expect. So I just wanted you to notice the burning of the bones that were buried near the altar of Bethel. I also wanted you to notice the altar of Bethel. Can I spell altar right? hope so. Because that should ring a bell for you. Ding, ding, ding. If I say altar of Bethel, what should you say back to me? You should say Elisha and Elijah, right? Which is where we were. Okay, so now we're going to go and read all of 1 Kings uh, 13. And it is in your bulletin. And it's very long. But there's no, as I said, there's no other way to do it. It's an extremely complex story. It's very important because what is it ultimately about? It is about Josiah, and it is therefore about the crucifixion of Christ, so that you will have a correct understanding of it. And when I'm done with it, I'll have a very short, incomplete list, because there's thousands of questions here, and we might be able to do 50. Um, Maybe I'll answer some. Maybe not. And behold, whenever you see the word behold, you have to stop, right? That means God is about to give you the most important information of this particular passage. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel. I've been to Bethel. I put the sewage system in the old school there. It's not the same Bethel. A man of God went to Judah, from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Jeroboam is the king of Israel at the time. Then he cried out against the altar, the man of God did, by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, O altar, O altar, thus says the Lord, behold a child. Again, let me just put that for you. Behold, because I'm getting ahead of myself, behold a child. What should you immediately think? Come on. Yeah, you're thinking Christmas, right? Which, of course, is not in December. It's in when? It's in probably October. Feast day of trumpets. Anyway, behold a child, Josiah by name shall be born to the house of David, and, and on, on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. Okay, so this is the prophecy. A man comes in, he stands next to the king of Israel. You've got to ask, how is this going to fit together? And he screams out at the altar that the king of Israel has built, and he says to the altar, Someday, a child whose name is Josiah is going to come and he's going to start burning priests on this, on you. That's what he says. Kind of a downer. I would say. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass with King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that King Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him, or seize him, whatever. Then his hand, which he stretched out towards him, withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. 
the altar was also split apart and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand might be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and he, and became as before. Got that? Every one of those little details, critically important. I'm going to teach you about the crucifixion. Come home with me. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your kingdom or half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. That's part one of 1 Kings 13. Got all that information? Hope you do. Now, an old prophet dwelt in Bethel. And his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. Dad missed the show. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. Which words? Not the words he said to the altar. The words he said to the king. There's a distinction. So you figure out which words he said to the king. And their father said to them, which way did he go? Now you know which words, right? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went, who came from Judah. How did they see that? Maybe they knew dad, the old prophet, be interested in it. Then he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. Ha! There we go. We have a donkey. Of course, we're going to have a donkey because why? Christ enters Jerusalem on a donkey. So we're going to have one here. And so they saddled the donkey for him and he rode on it. And he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Or I. The am is in, is in italics and is not in the text. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you, nor go in with you, neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way you came. The old prophet said to him, I too am a prophet, as you are. We're the same here. It's all working out, right? And an angel spoke to me, and listen, I, I, I'm going to have some medicine and tell you. Somebody comes up to you and tells an angel spoke to you, to them, and that you're supposed to do something, just fall down laughing. It's retarded. I always ask them when they down, they, I, 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 if I have had it happen once, I've had it happen a hundred times, maybe even a thousand times. People have come up to me and said, I have a word from God. And I always ask them, well, did an angel bring it to you? And half the time I can get them to say yes. And then I tell them, I'll wait for the angel to come to me. No offense. 
I want the angel myself. I don't trust you. First Kings 13. He said to him, I too am a prophet as you are, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you to your house. In other words, the angel completely contradicted God. And God said, okay, ignore what I said. You said, an angel said, that's good enough for me. Anybody comes up to you and says, an angel is contradicting the word of God. 1 Kings 13. If I had a dollar for every time somebody told me an angel said the Bible wasn't worth reading, I would have a really nice car versus the one that's pouring antifreeze all over the parking lot now, as I speak. It's a water pump. Uh, the Ford, the Ford uh, dealership here told me that it would be only $2,900 to replace the water pump. And I told him the car, on a good day, going downhill, is worth 1,200 tops. So 2,900 not seem like... So what do I do instead? I keep filling it up. That's right. It's, it's working great. We make really short trips. Anyway, how did I get to that? I was getting mad over people who lie to you about angels over uh, contradicting the Bible or anybody contradicting the Bible. If you're contradicting the Bible, you're in trouble. You're wrong and you're probably evil, whether you know it or not. Go read 1 Kings 13. I, too, am a prophet as you are, and the angels, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord. Bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. Yes, duh. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread, drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your father. Notice he said your corpse versus you. Back to Back to substance dualism. God never describes you, the person, as your body. You are a living soul. Your body is your body. So it was after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. When he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body or corpse was thrown on the road and the donkey stood by it which I would fully expect. The lion also stood there, which I would fully expect, by the corpse. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road and the lion standing by the corpse. Then they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. Now when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, it is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Never mind, I'm the liar about the angel. It is the man of God who is disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord, which, spoke, which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son, saddle the donkey. 
for me. So they saddled it. Then he went and found the corpse thrown on the road and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse nor torn the donkey, which I would expect. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. So he laid the corpse in his own tomb. Aha! Somebody laid somebody in his own tomb. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. So it was, after he had buried him, that he spoke to his son, saying, When I am dead, bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones besides his bones, for the saying which he cried out of the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil ways, but again he made priests from every class of people for the high places, whomever he wished, he consecrated them, and he became one of the priests of the high places." And this thing was the sin of, of the house of Jeroboam so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. Okay, you got all of that? Got plenty of time. That's the story. Thousands of questions. Like I said, we'll answer as many as we can today. Two. Let's make an incomplete list. Ready? 290 to 300 years apart. In other words, from the time the man says a child is coming and he's going to destroy this altar and destroy this priest and this paganism, 300 years pass. Josiah is named. Josiah He says who is coming, and he says who the name is. That's very important. He's announced. The unnamed prophet announces the name of the child that is coming. Okay? Behold a child, Josiah by name. And again, immediately when you hear behold a child, Josiah by name shall be born in the house of David. If I left out Josiah and said, Behold, a child shall be born in the house of David, obviously you can quickly get to Luke 126 through 33 and Matthew 10, or I'm sorry, Matthew 120 through 25. I'll put them together for you. Behold, the virgin will be with child, a son, call his name Yeshua, salvation, Jesus, house of David. Same elements in both. Josiah by name. Very important. Josiah and Christ, along with Cyrus, are Koresh. I was talking to Kathy and the visitor earlier, whom I've neglected to name. Why have I neglected to name the visitor? That's right, because I have completely forgotten. That happens when you're old. Feel sorry for me. Cyrus, or Koresh, as you would expect to see it, and Jesus, or Yeshua, or salvation. Okay? Those three 
share that characteristic. Obviously, Cyrus and Josiah have to be paired together because they become two halves of a whole. And we have to investigate and study them. Uh, Isaiah 44:28 is where Cyrus is named. 150 years before he comes. Okay? So it becomes very important to put Cyrus and Josiah together and ask, why is it that these two are named specifically? That's very important because that's, that's your list of them in Scripture, right? When both Cyrus and, and uh, Josiah are, na- are added together, what is revealed on about Jesus Christ? Okay, so here we go. I think I put Cyrus 3. Uh, now my list is a mess, so I think this is what I did. Let me check. Yes. The prophecy is, is that Josiah the king will sacrifice priests on this altar that the man of God comes and yells at, if you will, or prophesies against. So Josiah will come and he will burn priests on the very altar that the man of God comes to prophesy against. Now, I want you to ask the obvious questions. And he'll also not just burn priests, he'll burn bones. He'll go and he'll get the bones out of the tombs, out of the graveyards, and he'll burn the bones too. Now, I want you to consider that for a second. The equivalent would be uh, somebody comes here, uh, makes a prophecy in front of the king of the city, which I assume would probably be the governor or the mayor, and he's surrounded, of course, by uh by the the big festival is going on, and he makes this, this sign or uh, this thing, and 300 years later it happens. So keep kind of get that little analogy, if you will. Now ask the obvious questions. Why has God sent His prophet to name a king to come, and the king is going to come 300 years later? And that king will burn the prophets of Baal and the bones of the priests of Baal, and he will burn it on the altar of Bethel. So the question is, is why did God wait 300 years? Ask another obvious question. What's happening? What is Jeroboam the king doing? Why is Bethel the center of this. And again, remember, this is the same Bethel in 2 Kings 2 where Elisha is killing soldiers, right? What's Elisha killing soldiers with? Two bears. This is the two female bears. Hopefully you remember that. And the sign that this is going to happen So the man of God comes to Jeroboam and the crowd there, and the sign that this is going to happen is that the altar will split. So I have a split altar. Why that sign? Why not? Thank you. Why not a big fire? Why not angels blowing trumpets? Why not... The moon turning red, the sun turning black. The sign that this is going to happen 
is the splitting of the altar. And the ash is pointed out on the ground. Now, what's the obvious question, by the way? Obviously, God does not like that altar, does he? So what's the obvious question? What are the priests doing? Jeroboam's little group here. What are they doing at the altar? Better question. What were they burning? Better question. Who were they burning? God is intervening. He sends his man, an unnamed man, not named in Scripture. And the unnamed man names somebody. That's really rare in Scripture. So I have the unnamed naming. And God intervenes because something's happening on this altar of Bethel that he says, I, I'm just not going to continue. I'm going to warn them. And his warning is, a child is coming. Why did he say child? What's the obvious conclusion that you would have? A child is coming to take vengeance. He's going to bring justice. For who? For the ones getting burned. It's my view that they're killing children. They're burning children. It's what they do in paganism and Baalism and Malk. A child is coming. You're burning these children? Someday I'm going to send a child. That child's going to burn you. On the altar that you're burning the children on, a child that comes 300 years named Josiah, going to burn you. Not only is he going to burn you, he's going to go get all the bones of the other youths that have died in the interim, that kept burning the children, and he's going to burn their bones. Now we have to understand, when you burn bones, what is God saying that means? What does it mean when you consume the bones? It's God's symbol, right? Now when Jer Jeroboam hears this, because he's right there, this is the king, who's there with him? His military. When Jeroboam sees this, he's going to reach out his hand, because when you reach out your hand as the king, that, that means that he is about to do what to the person he is reaching his hand to? Kill him. How do you suppose you kill him? You don't come to my party, my festival, and say, hey, God is against you. He's going to, he's going to split your altar, and this, a child is going to come, and he's going to burn you guys. All of you. Jeroboam doesn't think that's very polite. Reaches out his hand, but he can't reach out his hand because the hand is withered. So he hears this and he tries to stretch out his hand, an act that the king uses to carry the intent to kill and execute the unnamed prophet to seize him. And he can't do it. Again, consider the circumstances. The king himself, Jeroboam, is at Bethel with his priesthood, burning children, sacrificing them, among other things. Things. It's Jeroboam feast day, by the way. He invents this day. He decides it's going to be the 15th day of the 8th month instead of the 15th day of the 7th month, which is the feast day of tabernacles. So he has his own little feast day. You've got to do your previous reading in chapter 
uh, 12, by the way, to get this. And Jeremiah made two golden calves. So he has two golden calves, and I'll draw the calves. I'm very good at drawing calves. Okay? Here they are. He's got two of them. I know they look like cats to you, but that artwork could go for millions. He, they, those two golden calves support that altar that Jeroboam has made. And this is the feast day, if you will, of Jeroboam, or Jeroboam feast day. And he's doing it specifically to compete against the feast day of tabernacles. And he has, again, these two golden calves. What's the question now? Why does he have two golden calves? Well, don't we have one golden calf back in Exodus? He's got two. And he had priests, by the way, if you heard that said, that are not Levites. He just grabbed people off the streets and made them priests, and he made himself a priest. By the way, only one person in all of human history is allowed to be called king and priest. Who's that? Christ himself. And this man is doing that. He's saying, I am priest and I am king. Christ is the high priest and he is the king. He is the only one... The, the, the law of Moses specifically prohibits the king from being a priest, and Jeroboam is doing that. And he's sacrificing the, to these two golden calves supporting the altar. And into this counterfeit feast day comes this one unnamed prophet. God sends one guy into the midst of this. And he walks into a pagan sacrifice and is surrounded by a multitude of people because you had to go to Jeroboam feast day. Otherwise, you're going to end up on the altar, right? So you're all there. Trust me, it's mandatory. And Jeroboam himself is standing there. And the unnamed prophet yells out, a child will come and burn you guys on the altar. So says God. Didn't go over well. The king very likely intended to kill the unnamed prophet right then and throw him on the altar and burn him. I believe that's obvious. But Jeroboam's arm withers, couldn't stretch it out, withered it. See Zechariah 11.17. What's in Zechariah 11.17? That is where the arm of the Antichrist or the hand of the Antichrist is described as withered. It is, an, it is a symbol or specific characteristic of a king that is killing his own people. So Jeroboam is paralyzed with his withered hand. And the altar then what? What happens to the altar? As soon as his hand is withered and paralyzed, what happens to the altar? The, the unnamed prophet is correct. The altar explodes like a bomb. And so imagine the, the blowing apart of the, of the altar and the ashes are poured out onto the ground. And this is the sign. So the sign is given. And no one moves against the unnamed prophet. They don't grab him. They leave him alone. And Jeroboam feast day is destroyed. It's a resounding failure. It's a dud. Now, this very inexplicable thing starts to happen. Jeroboam wants what? After you blew up his altar and you threw all the ashes all over the ground and you destroyed Jeroboam feast day and you've made a mess out of things, Jeroboam's hand is a mess. It's all withered up. I want to know what that looks like, by the way. What does Jeroboam want? 
Yeah. His idea is, hey, give me your my arm back. Now, if somebody was doing what Jeroboam was doing, and your job was to go and stop it, and you're there and you stop it, and you wither his arm, and he says, hey, why don't you pray to your God? Notice that. Running out of stuff. Why don't you pray, pray to your God and get my arm fixed? You broke it. You blew up my altar. I want my arm fixed. What in the world is that about, huh? Reminds you, by the way, of the hand of Moses, the leprous sign, right? Remember all of that? God restores his hand. Why does God restore the hand of a man as evil as this? A man that was trying to kill his prophet, but God does it. Again, he doesn't, Jeroboam doesn't say it's his God. He says, pray to your God. Ask your God. But the key question is, for next week, why does God restore that hand? Would you have done it? No, it's the opposite of us, isn't it? Now, here's where we have a show of hands, and what's the rule? Never raise your hand here. Never. Okay? Raise somebody else's hand. Who here believes that Jeroboam is going to give the unnamed prophet who just blew up his altar and ruined his feast day, who believes that he's going to give that guy a reward? I'm going to give you a reward for blowing up the altar and my golden calves, which support it, and withering my hand. Come to my place. <laughs> Come on. Come to my place. Take a bath. Get yourself cleaned up. How about some food? We'll get you some food, a bath, place to rest. Come on over. What could possibly go wrong? The man of God refuses. I would not go with you if you gave me half of your kingdom. What do you notice? Where do you go in the New Testament? He says, come to my place. I will not go. I will not eat bread. I will not eat the water. You take your kingdom and shove it. Where is that in the New Testament? Word for word, by the way. Where is it? That's right. It's in Matthew 4. Where Christ solves the, what we think is a paradox. Oops, I forgot the four. Where Christ solves what people think is the paradox of the ability to free will choose to reject God and God's omniscience. I will not eat bread nor drink water in this place. Just notice the bread, water, kingdom element that's there and the Matthew 4. Now, number nine is the Lord's commandment. You shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return the same way. Not eat bread, not drink water, not return the same way. What's the meaning of that? And it's a commandment of God. It's explicit instructions. Eat no bread, drink no water, don't come back the same way. Obviously, there's deep and complex meaning to this. Obviously, I hope you can recognize some of it. This is a commandment from God. It's a direct order, and it is a total rejection of this place. He does it, he calls it this place. Okay, obviously, we now want to know what place is it? What is this place? It's Bethel. What does Bethel mean? It means house of God, but clearly isn't. It's the seed of paganism all the way up to Elisha and beyond. And God is telling his prophet to totally reject whatever is happening at Bethel. Reject what it represents. Reject who represents it. God loathes this place. God will not touch it. 
It's what he's saying to use a human phrase. So it's important to us to understand what it represents. And God will burn those on this very altar that burned others. And what's that? When God burns you, what does that mean? Is that good? Not for you. It's a clear picture of condemnation and justice. Recently, we had a national politician that said, essentially, God bless the abortion industry. He should read First Kings 13. I don't think greater ignorance is, is possible than that. It's not possible to be more ignorant than that. God bless the abortion industry. God will never bless the abortion industry. He will judge it. He says, flee from this place, eat nothing, drink nothing, just leave it. Leave it to me. I will sing it. I will send a child who will be a king. And he'll burn it. It's hopelessly contaminated. Fire will be the cleansing agent. And there, by the way, is a fundamental tenet or doctrine of the Bible. There are two cleaning methods, cleansing methods. You can have God's blood or you can be cleaned with God's fire. You get to choose, right? Sin will be ended. God is long-suffering. He will wait. But the 300 years comes so does the 150 years comes, because the king is coming. And by the way, next, there's an old prophet in Bethel. What's he doing in Bethel? What's Bethel? Bethel is a place where we're doing great evil things. And he's there. He lives there. I have a prophet in Bethel who lives in this place. Remind you of anybody? I have a man who should not be there, but he's there in a place of great evil. Remind you of anybody? Who chooses to be there. Yes, I'm Lot in Sodom, aren't I? By the way, Sodom likewise was a place that harvested children and strangers. And God comes, Christ himself comes, God manifested comes with fire. And this old prophet is a great mystery, as is the lion and the donkey and the bones. And that's what we will do next week. Let's rise and be dismissed.